otherwise known as Dr. Amy, and this podcast is The Most Important Medicine. If you're a physician or healthcare provider, this podcast is for you. This is where we learn about trauma-informed medicine and ways to build resilience in healthcare organizations. And we do this through stories, the stories of other professionals and patients and your own. We listen to each other to transform medicine with compassion and curiosity about what it means to be a trauma-informed practice or provider. Every time you join me, I want you to hear practical information and lead with tangible tools that you can use with patients right away. So today I'm really excited. I get to talk to my friend, Joe Sherman. So I'm gonna just do your bio here, Joe. Um, Joe Sherman is a pediatrician, coach and consultant to physicians and healthcare organizations in the areas of well-being, leadership and career discernment. His services include coaching, medical team support, physician retreats, and workshops. He is a trained facilitator with the Center for Courage and Renewal and a master certified physician development coach with the Physician Coaching Institute. Joe's been a, in pediatric practice for over 35 years, concentrating on healthcare delivery to underserved and medically complex children in the District of Columbia, Tacoma, Seattle, Uganda, and Bolivia. He has held numerous faculty positions and is currently the clinical associate professor of peds at the University of Washington. Joe. Wow. How so are nice you, Amy? <laughs> good to see you. It's good to see you. Um, that's your fancy bio. Tell yeah, them, right. <laughs> tell folks more about you. Oh, wow. Okay. Uh, I am a husband and a dad of three kids and a cat and uh, live in South Seattle. Been here for about, yeah, since 2000 when I moved here with my wife uh, because she's from here. I'm originally from the East Coast, from Washington, DC. So that's why I've kind of bi-coastal a little bit. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, awesome. And uh, just for the listeners out there, Joe and I met because we co-facilitate a free anonymous group called Physicians Anonymous. Um, so I'll put that link in the show notes so that people could join us. But how would you describe our work with Physicians Anonymous, Joe? I would say, I, for me, it's amazing working with you, Amy, because it, I feel like we really work well together in in trying to create as safe a space as we can for physicians and residents or medical students to just show up and to find support, to not feel alone or isolated, especially coming out of the, the height of the pandemic. And it just provides a, um, a space and an opportunity for people to debrief and to feel like they belong and that they're not as isolated as they have been. Mm -hmm. Oh my gosh. I 100% I agree. I think every Wednesday morning and there are other meetings too. Like I said, I'll, I'll put it so people can find physicians anonymous, but people just show up wholeheartedly um, and share what's feeling hard as a physician. So yeah, so we'll, we'll make sure more people know about that, but it's Wednesday mornings. Joe and I are having early morning coffee and chatting with people from all over. <laughs> um, okay, so tell me about just your trajectory, how you, 
you know, have moved throughout pediatrics and why and how you became a physician coach. And you've been kind of all over the globe. So will you just tell our listeners a little bit of your story? Sure. You know, I thinking way back about why I ever became a doctor, why I wanted to go into medicine. A lot of it, I think, had to do with growing up as a youngest of seven kids and nobody else had gone into healthcare. So I wanted to pick something nobody else did. Uh, we're always trying in my family <laughs> to become recognized in some way to stand out <laughs> above all the rest of the crowd. So that was part of it. And part of it was from an early age, I think, I had this attraction to wanting to help folks in some way, especially young people as a coach or tutor or whatever that might be. So that is really what got me interested in medicine. And at the times, way back when, ancient history, uh, when I started college in the 70s, it was uh, the time that becoming a doctor meant that you had this status in society. You mm -hmm. would earn a good living. You had to put in quite a bit of time for education, but it was almost like once you committed and you made it, that was your ticket. You were good. You could really have the autonomy, move where you wanted to go, do what you wanted to do. Those times have changed dramatically, uh, mm -hmm. I think, since then. But I would say then going into medical school, I it was right um, during my senior year of college where I lost both my parents. They both died uh, of uh, chronic diseases. And so I lived through that period of time in my life without knowing anything about what was going on with them medically and feeling lost, alone, and knowing that the plan was to go to medical school all the time. So I remember during that time thinking, gosh, do I want to be a teacher? Do I want to be a counselor? Do I want to be something else? And at that point in my life, things were so uncertain that I decided to just go with the program. That was the plan. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So going in, yeah, do, go ahead. Do you, do you think, had your parents not died, would it have set your trajectory differently? I mean, we always look back and look at these sliding door moments, right? Yeah, I, you know, to be honest with you, probably not, mm -hmm. I would say. And I think if anything, I think at that time, in looking back, I wish I had taken some time to just process that grief, mm -hmm. because mm -hmm. I think it's stuck with me for quite some time sure. as a result. Uh, but I wonder about that. And I think at the time, like I say, the attraction to medicine uh, was still very strong. So, mm -hmm. so I can, I went on, I went into medical school, but there was this, this difference that I felt between myself and my classmates. And that difference was that I had just gone through this pretty traumatic experience and this very dramatic experience of accompanying my parents through their deaths. And now all of a sudden I started to learn what actually was happening with them medically. Mm, oh my gosh. And I started to wonder and ask questions. I remember writing to their physicians and saying, what was going on? What was the cause of that? What was this? I'm learning about this and, and learning more and more about what was happening and also learning about how their doctors treated them, what mm -hmm. worked, what didn't work and how I wanted to be different than 
definitely my father's doctor was you, toward him. Can you say more about that for people that, you know, might be wondering, like, what was it that you're like, I don't want to do that? Oh, well, I mean, this is a long story, but I'll try to cut it short. It, my father, my mother died uh, somewhere around Thanksgiving of my senior year of college. And by Christmas, uh, that break over Christmas break, my father was in the hospital and was diagnosed with uh, bladder cancer. Mm. So this was only a month after my mother had died. And at the time, he didn't know that that was a diagnosis. And he had been in the hospital, had an evaluation for something I didn't understand at the time. But he came home and I was home alone with him at the time and he was in pain. And I ended up calling the doctor and asking. At the time I was 20 years old, I think, 21 maybe. And I called the doctor. I said, well, what's going on? My father's in pain. I don't understand. He doesn't know what's going on. And the doctor told me over the phone that I'd never met him, that my father had cancer oh and that it was metastatic and that he was going to die oh and that there was no treatment. And at the time, I just was shocked. I didn't know what to say. I didn't know what to do. I was definitely had this pressure of trying to figure out what, what are all those questions? The only thing I could think of is all the doctor shows <laughs> and like, what do they ask? You know, how many months does he have to live or, you know, what's the, and I asked those questions and he said, probably four to six months. Oh my goodness. And I said, I don't think my father knows this. Mm -hmm. And he said, uh, well, bring him into the office and we'll chat. So I called my oldest brother immediately yelling at him for not knowing what was going on. Mm -hmm. And then we both accompanied my doctor in for an appointment mm -hmm. and his doctor still didn't tell him even oh during that appointment, did oh my not goodness. tell him. We came home. I called the doctor again. I said, he still doesn't know he has cancer and that he's dying. And the doctor's response was, do you really think it's going to help now? I mean, he's kind of depressed about losing your mother and this just might set him into a deeper depression. Oh my goodness. And being a 21 year old college student, I was like, I don't know. I don't, I'm not a doctor. You're his doctor. Mm -hmm. So it ended up where somewhere, somewhere you knew better, Joe. Oh, yeah. You were absolutely. asking those questions, even as a non-physician at that point, right? You were like, wait a second, shouldn't he know? Why do I know? And he doesn't, and he doesn't understand. And oh that was the worst. I knew and he didn't. Yeah. And that was hard. That was hard for me. Um, I went back to college with him still not knowing. And uh the next appointment, finally, my oldest brother told him that. Mm -hmm this is what the diagnosis was. Mm -hmm. uh, and then I was in college. Uh, I came home once after that. And then he died in April, right after that Christmas. Wow. Um, and so when I went into medical school, I was, I'm, I just had this, this commitment to know my patients, understand them, accompany them, be a part of any questions they have, anything. It was my role as a medical student, I felt, to be that advocate for my patients. Mm -hmm. The attending physicians and residents were busy. And so I had time to sit by the patient's bedside and mm -hmm. learn about their families and what 
And so I got to know a lot of my patients mm -hmm. in medical school. And I think that formed the kind of doctor I became. It was mm -hmm. this idea that I wanted to accompany my patients. I wanted to be a part of their lives. And it wasn't this contractual kind of, uh, you know, you come to me, pay me, I give you a prescription, you go home. It was, I want to get to know you and everything that there is to know about your health and how your well-being. That's primary care, right? Yeah. Yeah. Can I can I ask just a curious question? I'm fast forwarding into sure. you being a practicing pediatrician. And I'm imagining this parent who's holding a diagnosis for their child, similar to you holding it for your father. Um, and maybe saying to you as a pediatrician, maybe we shouldn't tell them how, mm. how will it affect that? How will it, right? Like, have you ever been faced with that parallel path? Absolutely. I can remember very, very well when I was, I think it was, I'm not sure like what year, maybe I was an intern, maybe it was my first year of residency, mm -hmm. 12 year old boy who was diagnosed with Hodgkin's disease and had uh, recurrences probably about two or three times. And Hodgkin's disease on initial diagnosis has a very favorable prognosis. It, it's very treatable. Mm -hmm. And this was even back in, this was in the eighties. Um, however, in this particular case, because of the recurrences, his prognosis was not good at all. And I was the intern taking care of him and his parents refused to uh, let us tell him or to refuse, they refused to tell him themselves that he was most likely going to die, that this last ditch effort of chemotherapy was just to kind of buy him more time. And I just remember going back in his room, sitting there, watching TV with him, just hanging out with him. Mm -hmm. And even though I could not go against the parents' wishes because yeah. he was still a minor and we could not overrule the parents' wishes at the time, I got the feeling that he knew. Mm -hmm. I got the feeling that he knew what was going on. We would have conversations. I would ask him how he feels about things what he thinks about. And he worried about his parents. He worried about what they were going through and everything. Mm. So I've been through those situations. In that case, I couldn't, I couldn't say anything. Mm -hmm. And uh, so he eventually died. It wasn't right away, but it was soon after that. And um, um, I'm not sure if his parents ever told him, to be honest with you. But I do remember that, that one patient and just how I felt. I just felt this draw to accompany him. I wanted to just hang with him, just be mm -hmm. with him. Mm -hmm. And he knew somewhere he was protecting his parents also. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. That came through loud and clear. What, what's, what's the lesson in that for young residents, for instance, who, you know, haven't had the the lived experience that you had losing your parents or keeping a diagnosis from someone or being asked to, and now they're maybe struggling with the same thing. Yeah, I, this, 
is something that uh, for me at the time, there was not a venue, there was not a process for me to talk about this at all, mm -hmm. uh, to talk about what was going on. I relied on friends, maybe classmates at the time, um, but our department, our program did not have any type of process or any type of program that helped us to debrief, to process these issues, to help us to deal with our own emotional reactions to these encounters. And I think that is the message. I feel like you go through so much, especially as a resident, because everything is new and you're powerless, really. You don't have the autonomy that you will have later as mm -hmm. You know, if you're in academic medicine as an attending physician or in practice, mm -hmm. but it's important to to create those either formal or informal settings where you can share your stories and lean on each other for support. Because mm -hmm. even if you can't change something like in that instance, you couldn't change what you were able to share. You could share with other people who could be in that space with you. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, as I think about it, going back in the time, I don't think I would have changed anything that I did. But I do know that for me, um, my, my attraction to pediatrics and my draw was much more to accompany my patients, mm -hmm. to be the advocate for parents, mm -hmm. to be that person who is the counselor, the person that really kind of sees them through thick and thin, mm -hmm. uh, and not so much the technician or the scientist that knows all of the kind of medicine. All of the things. things, yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, so continue on with your story. So you have a really interesting um, history where you and your family moved to other countries and you practice medicine there. Yeah. Yeah. It, this all started in residency. Also, I got a chance um, my senior year of residency to go overseas for a month as an elective and work in Belize on the Guatemalan border. Mm. And this was an amazing experience. I just like was extracted from the medical wards to this village in mm -hmm. Belize. And it was so magical for me. And it's transformative because I could, it was this discovery of a new culture and a new way of being. There were no expectations placed upon me. I could be whoever I wanted to be in that setting. Wow. And I could learn from all of these people, uh, mostly they were mestizo. It was a mixture of indigenous folks as well as the Spanish uh, colonialists uh, back in the time. And so I learned from their culture, from the way they approached medicine, healthcare, everything. And I found this to be fascinating for me. Um, and I carried that on into my future and always looked for opportunities while I was in practice to go overseas uh, with various organizations, mostly in Latin America, Mm -hmm. um, to kind of have that experience of, of being in another culture and seeing how medicine is practiced and really trying to make use with, with few resources you have 
to try to be of benefit and help to other people. So mm. that's what I experienced there. Uh, okay, so I can't help but ask this question. Sure. Um, what are we getting wrong here in medicine, especially in the world of pediatrics or serving families? What are we doing wrong? Oof, what are we doing wrong? You know, every country that I have visited and later we moved, after I got married, my wife and I moved to Uganda. So we were there for two years, later back to uh, Latin America and Bolivia for four years with our kids. Every place that I have been, where I've lived, whether I've been there for years or for a month, there is a, an environment that is slower. Things slow down. Time just slows down. So there's not the rush, the, the idea that you have to produce, you have to get things done, you have to keep moving. So that's one major part. The culture, the culture is one of relationship, of community, and of taking time to create that. So that's huge. Mm -hmm. The other factor is this idea of here in the US, medicine has become so technological and the information explosion that has occurred puts so much pressure on physicians and those in healthcare to always have the answers, to get everything right, to be perfect all the time. Mm -hmm. When you're in one of these other countries that's low or middle, low to mid resource countries, there's an expectation that you do the best you can mm -hmm. and things happen. There mm -hmm. are diseases, people live, people die. Mm -hmm. You do whatever you can given the resources that you have, and there are powers at play that go beyond what you're able to do. And so people are much more accepting. People are much more uh, grateful mm -hmm. for anything that you do for them, given, uh, given your time, your dedication, uh, and they create that space, that relationship, and that community to support you in the meantime. Wow. Wow. So, is that when you came back to the States and were practicing here, I know you share and have shared and coach now and about your own story of just moving to a space of, of overwhelm and burnout is moving back into that corporation. Is that what pushed you back into that path of just ugh, the, the bureaucracies of healthcare? Yeah, I think as I look back over my medical career, um, I was really fortunate over the years to be able to find positions that were the right fits for me. Mm -hmm. And usually, as I look back, I've had several different jobs abroad as well as in the U.S. When I was a member of a team and we supported each other, we really honored each other's gifts and talents and unique contributions to that team. And we had some type of autonomy or protection from the pressures of the larger institution. Then we were able to adjust, adapt, and be a part of the community we were serving. And that's when I felt like I was at my best. Mm -hmm. When I was overseas, the last time for a long period of time was in Bolivia. 
that's what we were doing. I was involved in several different activities that were integrated into the community and very attuned to the community. When I returned, I went right into uh, back into academic medicine. It was uh, trying to make a an inner city uh, public health, well, I should say, safety net clinic, really work and function with very few resources. And there was I, I put the pressure on myself to make it all work, to make everything better. But I was working under a system that I was answerable to that made it extremely difficult. So instead of giving myself a break and saying, I'm doing the best I can, instead, I put the pressure on myself to, to work harder, make it work for everybody else at my own expense. Mm, and that's when I went downhill. Mm -hmm. So if, if there's a physician listening right now in their early career or their mid-career even, and they're like, I feel that suffocation, I feel that pressure. Um, but man, like, I don't know, Joe, that's a, like a lot of privilege to just like find a better fit, go somewhere else, practice in another country, like on a very practical level, what would you say to that person? I would say the most important thing in that situation is to create space for yourself, to create some type of space where you can reflect on where you are and give yourself a break by saying no to some things. And it doesn't feel right because it's not part of our culture. It's not part of the medical culture to say no to anything, especially when you perceive a need and you perceive that you're the one that fill that need. However, given today's healthcare culture, the way that we are right now in healthcare, and I feel like we're in this transition zone where we're really trying to catch up with all the technology and the mm -hmm. business of medicine. For now, it's really important to create some space so that you can reflect on where you are what it is that you do that really brings you life, what it is that you do in your job that really reflects your core values. Mm -hmm. And then what it is that you're either being forced to do or told to do or find yourself doing, which goes against that, which just really uh, is destroying you or, or, or slowly, slowly eating away at you. And you need to create that space deliberately, intentionally. And sometimes it's with another person in a company or whether it's a coach, a therapist, mm -hmm. a friend or anyone, but you really need to be deliberate about taking the time to take care of yourself, give yourself the space to reflect on where you are. It's the first step because otherwise we just keep going, going, going without ever stopping. Mm -hmm. Is that why you went into coaching? <laughs> yes. I mean, I got to the point where even though I'm a really self-reflective person, I'm a journal writer, I do all kinds of stuff. I still get caught in the same patterns that I've learned over my lifetime. Mm -hmm. And that is to be the helper, to be the savior, to be the one that steps in the gap. And so I keep falling into the same traps. Mm -hmm. I had to stop altogether. And it was just the anxiety, the, the, the depression, the, the, the feeling of failure that I had 
just, I had to step away. And as I did, I started to really take that time to reflect and to read and to talk to people and have the support that I really needed. And it was during that time that I started to really understand what the values were that I was pursuing overseas or what those those settings were that really made me come alive at various jobs in the States. And then I was able to say, okay, I can work part-time doing some of these things that really bring me life and bring me joy, but I really want to help other people and accompany other people. And then I started to realize that, wow, this is my true calling, that accompaniment. That's what I was doing back as a medical student. That's what I was doing overseas. That's what I was doing all the time. It was just that I was using medicine as the vehicle to do it. And now maybe I can do it through coaching and facilitating retreats and and being there more intentionally with more space with people in healthcare. Mm -hmm. So for people that are listening right now, I'm going to give them a little homework assignment based on what you just said. If you don't, if you don't hire a coach, if you don't hire a therapist, just take a moment to reflect on what part of my work brings me joy, what part of my work feels heavy, and just begin to reflect, right? And then, then maybe we can encourage people to, you know, work with a coach or a therapist or, you know, something like that. But at, at minimum, just start to do a little bit of self-reflection. Yeah, I, I think that's the first step. And as you do this, what will happen, what could happen is that you become overwhelmed and discouraged and, and think, oh my God, I'm doing everything wrong or nothing's <laughs> work or whatever it is. So that's where self-compassion comes in. It just is to understand that it's not your fault that you ended up where you are. Mm -hmm. You were part, we, we, we are part of this culture that you step on the train when you decide that you want to go to medical school. That's right. And that train takes off from the station and you have to jump off that train if you want to really do something different. Mm -hmm. You have to really be intentional. Otherwise, everything is laid out there. You just keep going. And the inertia is tremendous. Mm -hmm. So giving yourself the compassion to say, okay, this is something that all doctors go through. We all get discouraged at times. It's important for me to recognize that. And it's important for me not to beat myself up for having followed that and and for being kind of caught up in some of that. Mm -hmm. And when you do that, it creates the spaciousness to let you make the changes that you really need to make to make to make your career worthwhile. So since you're talking about the the compassion piece and really encouraging people to do a self-reflection, will you just talk a little bit more about the work you do as a coach and some of your retreats? I love working with groups. And the reason that I like working with groups is because as a facilitator, the focus is not on me. I'm just creating a space and creating prompts and some tools that enable people to reflect and also enable people to share their stories with each other. Mm -hmm. And this is extremely rewarding just to see the power in the group, the dynamic mm -hmm. that, that happens during that time so that people don't feel alone. So a lot of the work that I do is, it's called transformational leadership, mm -hmm. but it's leadership from within. It's that leadership that comes primarily from self-awareness, 
And that leadership that comes from examining your own experiences and what it is that you bring to medicine. And then the next step is to be able to create an environment that lets other people do that as a leader mm -hmm. so that you're not falling into the same hierarchical structure that medicine has, has just you know, been for centuries, but instead you create an alternative view, a view of inclusion, a view of engagement, a view of being open to new ideas and creativity. So that's the kind of retreat work that I do. Mm -hmm. I do team retreats and team building where it's very intentionally focused on each member of the team getting to know each other well and getting to know each other's true gifts and talents and needs too, where they need support. And then individually, I work with clients uh, who most of the time, either they're feeling kind of lost and burned out or they're just at a stage in their careers where they're, they're wanting to be more reflective. They're wanting to be more intentional at trying to discover which direction they want to take in their careers. Mm -hmm. So here's what I love about what you just said. If, if you're an individual right now, there's a space for you. If you're kind of struggling and you just need some guidance and career discernment, there's individual coaching. If you have a team and you want to really do deep work, there's teamwork. If you want, if you're an individual that wants to be part of a group, there's retreat work. And it sounds like really transformational stuff happens there. Um, so we'll link up to all of Joe's um, work in the show notes and ways to contact him. But um, as we wrap up, our, the, our time flies and I could talk to you forever. Will you come back and talk more about self-compassion work in medicine? Oh, absolutely. Yes, because it's so desperately needed. So desperately needed. So desperately needed. But for, for now, um, we'll we'll move into the rapid fire part of our, our section here. I'm going to ask you just a few human beingness questions. Okay, um, I'll put my human being hat on. Okay. Um, you're good at that. So what's what's one thing that people get wrong about trauma in medicine? What they get wrong is that somehow as a provider, regardless of who you are that somehow you have to fix it. You have to make it go away. Um, and because we like to take on those types of, of roles, we like to be the, the, the saviors or the ones that make it go away. But I'm married to a trauma therapist, so mm -hmm. I know it's, it's not that easy. So I think having a presence is the most important thing. A listening ear, because right now we have such a dramatic uh, shortage of uh, mental health specialists that are available that uh, as a physician or other provider, you're able to just listen. Mm -hmm. Oh, I agree. I agree. Um, if you could go back and talk to young Joe Sherman, uh, what would you, what's a piece of advice you would give him? All right. This may have nothing to do with what we're talking. It would be <laughs> have fun, loosen up, oh. you know, don't think you always have to get it right. Don't mm -hmm. think that you always have to be perfect or get the A or B number one. Just have fun every now and then. Oh, that's experience right there coming through. That's And it's on the heels. Joe and I were talking before we started recording today. He's getting ready to go on a fun vacation. So he gets to do lots of fun soon. Um, so often in healthcare, to your point about perfection and getting it just right, I think... Uh, 
people feel intimidated by professionals, right? What will you share just one thing that makes you a messy human being, perfectly imperfect? <laughs> All right. This is this is an easy one for me because I became a pediatrician uh, and I got out of residency when I was 28 years old and I had no kids. I wasn't married. I was single. And for those 10 years before I had my first child, um, I knew everything about kids and I knew everything <laughs> about parenting, everything whatsoever. I had the answer to everything. Mm -hmm. And then as soon as I had my first kid and as those multiple kids started to grow up, I knew less and less and less <laughs> and less. And so now I would say if I see a parent come in of a newborn baby, first parent, whatever it is, and they ask me a question about how to do this or how to do that, my first response is, I'm not sure what works for you. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, there are a lot of ways to do this and mm -hmm. I can help you with that. But yeah, it's it's the humility that comes from um, from understanding that everyone comes at things uniquely, everyone has their own story, and um, and being a parent is one of the most humbling things, especially um, for a pediatrician. <laughs> I know. I sometimes I just want to go back and apologize to all the families I worked with before I had kids, and just said, "Sorry, I did, I didn't know anything really. <laughs> now I'll just sit with your pain and just yeah. you know, do you want to just take a nap? This yeah, will right. <laughs> Okay. Okay. Last, last question here. This is the hardest question. Um, it's 11 o'clock at night and you have a food craving. What do you reach for? Ice cream. <laughs> what kind? <laughs> oh my God. You know, it's deadly because it would be ice cream and I'd crush up cookies and throw them oh. in there and, and yeah. put in the, just whatever I have in the kitchen and just like, yeah, make it nice and then mush it all around and yeah, just enjoy every bite of it. You're making like a blizzard. Oh yeah, exactly. That's it. Oh my God. <laughs> now I might have to run out and get one. You know, right? Oh my gosh. Um, so if people want to learn more about you, Joe, um, they can go to their web, your website, which we'll put in the show notes. Um, and if people want to join you and I, um, they can come to a physician's anonymous meeting. It's free to come and get that support. Um, but I just want to pause before we wrap up and just Thank you from the bottom of my heart for being on the podcast, but also I'm just so grateful you came into my life through Physicians Anonymous and you are a gem to the field of medicine and to every provider who comes in contact with you. You always have a word of encouragement. You always have compassion. There is never judgment or shame for where someone is. And I just don't think we see that enough. So thank you for that. Oh, you're too kind. <laughs> Thank you so much, Amy. I could say the same about you. Thanks so much. Thank you. Well, that's it, friends. If you like what you're hearing in this space, I invite you to join us in the Provider Lounge, a learning collaborative to build resilience. It's an incredible group of physicians who meet monthly, get CME, and lean into conversations about trauma, resilience, and other tough topics. This is the most important medicine. Keep listening to other people's stories and let them transform you. And keep sharing your own, because your humanity will heal others. We'll talk soon.